0: I have to say that uh, the trumpet is one of my favorite instruments. You may not know this, but, but young Mr. Derrick here actually majored in trumpet. Well, that isn't what happens. He got a music degree, and his primary instrument was the trumpet. I asked him to play this morning, but he uh, graciously uh, declined, saying he hasn't played a trumpet in years and blamed Timberwood Church or something. I don't know how that'll work. And says he just doesn't have the lips for it. I don't know what that means, but... Trumpets have been around for 3,500 years. Well, no trumpet's been around 3,500 years, but the trumpet has been around for 3,500 years. Most of the time, they had no valves. I, did, I didn't know that. The valves came around about 1818 when they were added, and there are generally seven different kinds of trumpets. We start off with the, the B-flat, the most common trumpet. That, that looks familiar to you, right? And then there's the c Which is totally different. (laughs) And then the E flat. Okay, that looks a little different. And then the natural. Notice no valves. And then the D. And then the piccolo. Notice the difference? Four valves. Okay, the piccolo trumpet. And then the rare F trumpet. And if I look like that, I probably wouldn't hang out much either. That's just weird. And then there's rumors that there's a G-trumpet, okay? And with all those trumpets, there are endless uh, mouthpieces and different things that go with it, and so it makes quite a number of options. There's a national trumpet competition in Columbus State University. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't. And there's such a thing as a trumpet choir, and there's trumpet choir competitions at the national competition, trumpet competition that's, that's held. A concert band has usually five to six trumpets. An orchestra usually has three trumpets, but may have another four off stage or in the balcony uh, for the effect. And and that's uh, what is that? What what is that term again? No, not that. Wow, that's technical. Playing off stage. Yeah, I couldn't. Have, I couldn't have made it in the music world. I couldn't memorize technical things like that. See, when I I play, I I played a a trumpet-like instrument in in school. It was called the coronet. Uh, Derek says it's like a little brother to the trumpet, a very inferior little brother to the trumpet. I kind of took, that hurt. I don't know about you, but you attacked my instrument. I I felt a little bad. Um, The trumpet was used as a communication tool for most of its existence. It wasn't until the late 1400s that it was used as a musical instrument. I feel a little bit like John, just throwing out all kinds of facts that don't really mean anything and have any relevance to the sermon. And then, and then, the only way to make it be perfect is throwing trumpets out right now. <laughs> As you know, I don't. I'm the one that doesn't throw things, at least in church. So I said it's usually used communication tool. It's, it's really common in the Bible. Over a hundred times the, the trumpet is referenced in the Bible. And in all those times, it's a communication tool. And the, and the first time it's used in his Exodus uh, 19.13, when the Israelites get to Mount Sinai and the trumpet is blown to signal that they're to come to the mountain to meet with God for the first time. Trumpets in the Bible announce significant things or direct us to do something. And, and often they're hugely significant because they come from God. And it's an announcement that God is about to do something. And that is what's happening in today's passages. passage. So if you turn with me to Revelation 8, starting at verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and, then, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. It's another light day in Revelation. We saw last week that that the trumpets were getting ready in verse 2 last week of 8, and then I saw, John speaking, then I saw seven angels who stood in before God, and seven trumpets are given to them. That is the... the, the, uh, kind of the mending or putting together of these different uh, series of sevens. We've been through the seven seals, now we're going through the seven trumpets, and there's going to be seven bowls. Just a reminder, I mentioned this last week, we see these all covering the same period of time. There, There's another way of looking at Revelation that puts everything in Revelation into the future. We don't see it that way. We see the first five of each of these in the church age, okay, so when Jesus brought the church age about, until Jesus returns, that's the church age. We're in that, and then we see six and seven of each at the final judgment. So, so we're seeing this is happening in the same time period as the seals, but it's a lot different. Each one of these look at that time period with a different perspective. The the seals looked at the uh, tribulations that all people went through, both believers and, and unbelievers. But its primary focus was that which was happening to believers when God brings tribulation on the believers to turn them back. Remember we saw in, in the, the seven letters to the churches, I know way back one and two and three, and he talked about how faithful some churches are and some churches weren't faithful. And God brings about tribulation, suffering into our lives to cause us to turn back to Him. Okay, But with the trumpets... With the trumpets, the focus is more on the unbeliever, the tribulation that's brought about on the unbelievers. You know, sometimes, as, as believers, sometimes we go, well, why do I have to suffer at all? I mean, I understand why those unbelievers suffer. They deserve it. They reject Jesus Christ. But why is a belief? isn't, I've turned to Christ. It all should be good. And people even quote me, Says, doesn't the Bible say somewhere that, that, Everything's going to be good for me if I love God? Well, it's close. What Romans eight twenty eight that most people are thinking of, actually says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. When we see that or we hear that, we, we instantly think, oh, it's going to be good. Good means what? Uh, a lack of pain, lack of suffering, uh, financial well-being, uh, security and and wellness, okay. The interesting thing though in, in the passage that eight twenty eight is found in that thing I just read, the beginning verse of that passage, verse eighteen, says For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is about to be revealed to us. That's how he starts. He's acknowledging the suffering that the Christians are going through. And Paul over and over and over talks about the suffering that we will go through. In fact, the Bible is clear that suffering comes about so that our faith can mature. Lack of suffering, lack of maturity. In fact, I had a professor, a 72-year-old professor at Bethel. I, I, I had him toward the end of his career. He's the guy that if you give him a Greek word, he can tell you how many times it occurs in the New Testament. He wrote the book on that. He also wrote the book of how all the Greek words came about. Okay, not something I'd choose to do, but that's his life's work. With his knowledge of the Bible, he literally said in class one day, I, I don't understand why I haven't suffered more. I'm 72 years old. I followed Christ. The Bible is clear that if I follow Christ, I will suffer, and in that suffering, my faith will be matured. Why haven't I suffered? more? God brings these things into our lives to cause us to turn to Him. I mean, it's interesting how we think if everything goes smoothly, our faith will be strong. That does not strengthen our faith. What strengthens our faith is when challenges come, and we turn to Christ, and He causes us to grow through those. And many of you have experienced. I mean, there's a person here, I I, I didn't mention this first service, because she wasn't in the first service. There's a person here I've quoted a million times here at Timberwood. She hasn't been with us much because she's been in Arizona, but Pat talked about how going through cancer caused her to grow in her faith. And she'd go through that cancer again because of the growth in her faith that it caused. And do we see tribulations and suffering that way? Do we seek them as a way to grow? Not that we're going to go harm ourselves, not that we're doing bad things, that we're putting ourselves in situations that are going to harm us, but do we see it and embrace it as a way to grow in our faith? That's what the Bible says. But we're on to the trumpets. and The trumpets are slightly different. They focus more on the punishment of the unbelievers. Now, Jesus Christ, when he came, he, he inaugurated the kingdom of God on earth. You know, in Matthew, when he says the kingdom is near, the better translation is the kingdom's more like here. Now, in, in Paul, we always say it's now, but not fully yet. The f- kingdom of God is not fully on the earth. We can see that every day. But it has been introduced by Jesus Christ coming. And with that has come judgment. Doesn't mean there wasn't judgment in the Old Testament, but it's a different kind of judgment. And it's what we believe the first four trumpets area are talking about. Now we're going to notice something as we go through these trumpets. They sound a lot like or feel a lot like the ten plagues that happened to Egypt when they held Israel captive. Do you remember that back in Exodus? Moses, God's going to use Moses. He's going to free his people. Moses goes to, to Pharaoh and said, you know, let our people go. Pharaoh says, no, there's all these plagues that come about them. There's 10 plagues. These are parallel. Some of these are parallel to that. And why does God do that? Why did God do that to the Egyptians? Well, really four reasons. One, to punish the Egyptians for the treatment of his people, the Israelites, for the 400 years of captivity. And to reveal the hardness of the Egyptian's heart. You ever think of that? That God causes something bad to happen to somebody to reveal that their heart is totally hard to Him and they won't turn to Him. We're going to see that in a second. And then to reveal His power to show the world that He really is that powerful and to free His people. Now the front trumpets are similar They punish the unbelievers. They reveal the hardness of their heart. He reveals His power, and it's a precursor to freeing His people, the followers of Son Jesus Christ, for the final exodus. How many of you feel like you're enslaved to this world? How many of you wait and you long for the freeing power of God to come and bring about the final exodus? Most of us don't think that way. In fact, we're holding on to this world so tightly. And God, anything but just don't let me die. We have all industries built on prolonging life to, to unbelievable levels. Because we think this is as good as it gets. Really? This can't be as good as it gets. There's a day of freedom coming if we're in Christ it's going to blow our minds. We can't really even get our minds around it. How powerful that day will be. Well, the trumpeters are warming up. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow. Where do you guys go to warm up? I mean, they're so loud. You ever heard a trumpeter warm up? I mean, they're like, ah, you know, you know, they need a mute. We need mutes. So the angels are warming up, kind of getting their tune together. And then the first angel, seven, the first angel blew the trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. And all green grass was burned up. First, we got a lot of thirds. We see that symbolic as significant, significant event, okay? Whether it's a third of the earth or not, probably not. But that symbolizes that. And hail and fire come down from earth. The, the seventh plague in the plagues of the Egyptians was hail and fire coming down, which seriously damaged the food sources, both livestock and plants, and, and caused a, a, a real problem for food. Now, during this plague, this is important, during this plague, Pharaoh calls Moses in and says, okay, that's enough. This is too much. I'm going to let you guys go. So Moses goes, tells God to stop the plague. And as soon as he stops the plague, what happens? Pharaoh says, oh, I've changed my mind. You can't go. You know people like that? Something bad happens in their life, and they start going to church. Maybe they even start reading the Bible. That bad thing passes, and so do they. They stop going to church. God, they didn't need God anymore. They came to God when they thought He could fix His problem. Maybe He fixes their problem or whatever. The problem goes away, and also they go away. As confusing as that is, the one that's even more confusing is just the opposite. When the believer who has some difficulty coming in their lives, they stop going to church and stop reading the Bible. I mean, I've gone to people and I said, Why don't we see you anymore? Oh, you know, I'm going through this really tough time. So, so I, haven't, I haven't come to church and I haven't had time to come to that Bible study. But as soon as things get better, I'll come back. You want to scream? What are you doing? No, now is, do you think maybe God has caused this to happen to test your faith and to see how you mature through this process and he wants you to get more serious and come to church? Ever crossed your mind? Next trumpet, second trumpet. Second trumpet blew, second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Again, the third symbolic. Fire is a, is a common uh, symbol or uh, event of, of judgment. And mountains symbolize in, in uh, Revelation for kingdoms in the Old Testament, for nations. And you say, what's the difference? A kingdom can be non physical, you know, good or bad. God's kingdom is right now non physical. So, so what, what do we have here? Well, it's like Jeremiah 51-25. Uh, he foretells of Babylon's destruction by calling it a destroying mountain. Babylon's a destroying mountain that will burn. And he announces this coming destruction with the blowing of a trumpet. He says, Babylon will be destroyed before the eyes of the Jew. For the evil that is done against Zion, Judah, and Revelation also talks about uh, extensively about Babylon and the destruction and, and how it symbolizes evil. Now, it's, it's interesting. You know, we're, we're going to do the Old Testament this Wednesday or this fall at Wednesday, the 14th. People all the time say, I, I, I don't know the Old Testament well enough. I can't be in a Bible study on a book of the Old Testament. Okay, fine. I got an answer to that. The first night, we're spending 45 minutes on an overview in the Old Testament up to the point of Jeremiah. You got no excuses. You don't know the you don't know the Old Testament? Great, come. I'm going to walk you through the Old Testament in 45 minutes. Okay. See, there's bookends to, to to really the Israelites' life. Exodus. Okay, when God creates the nation of Israel by bringing them out of out of slavery in Egypt, and that's kind of the creation of the nation of Israel. And then you go to five eighty seven where Judah is destroyed by Babylon. Now the interesting thing is Jeremiah is going to say, God is using Babylon to bring judgment on Judah. They don't see it that way. But that's exactly what he's doing. Jeremiah, the whole book of Jeremiah is basically, Jeremiah saying, can't you see? Can't you see what God's doing? And they don't like that. So it's kind of bookends. And so, so, what we're seeing here and the, the God's tribulation coming upon the, the nation or the world, he's kind of going between what? Exodus and Jeremiah, Exodus, Jeremiah. We're going to see that through here. Now, the interesting thing is we understand Egypt, right? And the tribulations on Egypt. But what's going on with Judah? They're the chosen people of God. Why in the world would God use an evil empire like Babylon to to destroy Judah. You want to know the answer? Show up on Wednesday nights. <laughs> next, next trumpet. The third angel blew his trumpet, verse 10, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the Waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Number of things going on here. Uh, great star could uh, probably not Satan. Satan's probably in the fifth um, uh, trumpet, uh, but clearly a demonic uh, star, uh, angel. Symbolized by the star, and often a falling star like that symbolizes either a nation or a person on earth. Here, the sense is that it symbolizes uh, unbelievers, and how unbelievers have polluted the earth and and made it evil. And and I think we're aware of that. We understand that wormwood is a a bitter herb that's talked about in the in the Bible. It contaminates water. It's thought to be poisonous. Uh, and especially in the Old Testament, it's seen as poisonous. And it symbolizes the bitterness of suffering as a revol- result of divine judgment. Again, it's a reference to Jeremiah. Jeremiah talks how the nation of Judah is punished by God for its idolatry and how, how wormwood uh, contaminates and brings about that judgment. And we go on. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. So this is the darkness is the ninth plague in Egypt. There it was total. Here it's partial. Speaks to the total... um, wrath and judgment of God on Egypt, but the total judgment of God is not on earth yet. That is coming. And, and in the, the process of this, God is, is punishing the unbeliever. But at the end of the day, God still wants them to turn. And we're going to see later in Revelation how some do. I, I've seen this in people where we're just everything seems to be going wrong in their lives. And you go, how much more can you take? When are you going to turn to God? How hard does God need to press in on your life before you're willing to submit and turn to Him? It can happen with believers, too. I mean, we can find ourselves in a situation as a believer where something bad happens to us or Somebody treated us wrong, or something's been going on for years, and in our minds, we, we just we just get bitter and we get angry, and the bitterness and anger won't go away until we confront that person and we tell them how how what they've done to us is so bad and how how they've treated us so horribly, and we just get mad and and how can you do this to me? Now I say, have you ever thought for a moment? That maybe God used this person to get your attention. To try to teach you something. Try to get you to turn to him in a different way. Try to not be so focused on on your hurts and your pain. But on him and his son, Jesus Christ. And he does it not to beat us up. He does it as he says over and over in the New Testament. Because he loves us, how many times you said to a child, "This is going to hurt you more than me," but I got to do it. As he disciplines, that's what he taught. Disciplines us. G.K. Beale, whose famous commentary we are using extensively on our study here, says about this: Many Christians think that the events that happen in history are theologically or spiritually neutral. But in fact, Revelation says that they have divine purposes attached to them which are relevant for unbelievers and believers. How one responds to such events is one indication of whether or not a person has a genuine saving relationship to God. Do Christians accept disastrous events as sent from God to refine their faith and to cause them to draw even closer to Him? Or do they blame God or become hardened to him? Does a characteristic negative reaction to devastating events indicate the spiritual darkness that one is in, whether as a pseudo-believer or as an unbeliever outside the boundaries of the visual covenant community? I've read that quote about 20 times. At first I thought, wow, that sounds pretty harsh. The more I think about it. And and, and where I differ with him is just when he says devastate. I don't think it has to be devastating. events. When we think we're mistreated, whether by nature, like a storm, like you lose almost all your trees and it hits all your buildings and you get really cranky. I don't know who that'd be, but you know, in case that happened. Or somebody does something to you or you have an unmet expectation or a child or a spouse or a parent or whatever, whatever wrong's been done to you you ever thought this exists? This thing exists to cause me to turn even more completely to God. And how you deal with it, as Beale says, might be an indicator of where you are in your faith. I know that sounds tough. Think of the last person you've told off. Why? Think of the last time a uh, uh, car accident, a deer, a, a tree crushes your house. Um, how'd you react? The focus in the trumpets are primarily on the unbeliever, but the truth still carries.